we're going to um, get started uh, on our next section, taking up where um, I believe Elder King left off last week, discussing, uh, we're going to finish up the section on cessation, then we're going to move on to canonicity and talk about why canonicity is such an important subject uh, and how we go about supporting it. So let's, uh, before we do anything else, let's begin with words of prayer. Sovereign Lord, we ask now that you would be with us here and that you would be the light of our minds, that you would help us to understand your word and to apply it. We also, we also ask, Lord, that you would help us to appreciate scripture, not merely to talk about its origin or its, uh, the wonder of its compilation, but to honestly um, be grateful that we have a God who speaks to us and who has transmitted his will to us in his word and in, uh, in such a way that we know that uh, we are loved, and we can be accepted in the beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to hold on to him no matter what. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen and amen. amen. All right. Hello, everybody. Um, we've been talking about cessation. Somebody give me a, a, a quick and, and dirty definition of, of cessation. Yes, Joy? Okay, okay. I'm not going to say you're wrong, but not quick. Okay. I've got to tell you that was, uh, but the, uh, Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, quick. <laughs> the, uh, You knew that. Uh, you said my name. Joy. <laughs> well, no, the, the, uh, there, there is one thing, though, that I think we should do, because I could ask a follow-up uh, um, question and say, so are all spiritual gifts seized? No. No? Which spiritual because gifts? Okay, so which ones continue and which ones do we believe have ceased? Well, there's the gift of having a new heart, which is the pretty primary gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's the working of the, the Holy Spirit in our effectual calling, that's right, regeneration and so on. And the fruits of the Spirit. Okay, so the fruits of the Spirit continue on, the, the list that we find in the book of Galatians, right? Yes? Okay, yeah. All right, so they continue on. Um, but we would say the extraordinary spiritual gifts are the ones that have ceased. Uh, things, what would be some of the extraordinary spiritual gifts? Come on, guys. Tongues. 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 Healing, prophecy, that kind of thing. Um, so the Westminster Confession of Faith makes that uh, God's former ways of revealing his will now being ceased. So particularly the prophetic uh, word that was given through the apostles and the prophets having ceased with the closing of the canon. Now, do all Christians believe that? No. No. In fact, what would we say? Would the majority of, of Protestant Christians believe that? No. No. At this point, no. Uh, they don't. Why? What movement uh, that started in the 1900s has really become the, uh, the majority uh, report within Protestantism? Pentecostalism, uh, which was integrated into or mainstreamed into Protestantism through what other related movement? Uh, 
Starts with a C. The charismatic movement, exactly. Okay, so the charisma uh, or the charismata uh, referring to the, uh, the extraordinary gifts. So, for instance, we will find um, charismatic Christians or charismatic Christianity um, present within movements that were at once, uh, at one point, absolutely opposed to it. So, for instance, there are denominations uh, within Presbyterianism that allow for the extraordinary sign gifts to still be manifested. Can anybody name the largest? Yes? Well, not the largest, but the EPC comes to mind. Yeah, the EPC would be the, um, the, the largest, uh, the Presbyterian denominations that uh, does not teach that the sign gifts have definitively ceased. So there are even Presbyterians out there. There are, um, uh, there are reformed movements, particularly amongst the reformed Baptists. Uh, how many of you have ever heard of the Sovereign Grace Churches? Okay. Who was the chief figure associated with that? Anybody remember? Mr. Yes, Mr. Behans, Mahaney, yep. Um, so, C.J. Mahaney, exactly. So, um, if we're talking about arguments in favor, and this is just the wrap-up, obviously. We've gone through our arguments for cessation. We just want to, uh, why we believe it's taught, why the Westminster uh, Divines taught it. Um, why we believe it's the truth, but uh, these are some of the, um, of the arguments then wrapping up in favor of cessation. So we're not presenting a straw man. And then arguments against uh, cessation. So the first of them is this, personal experience. 584 million Christians uh, are involved in charismatic slash Pentecostal churches, and that's an old figure. Uh, the number has actually gone up dramatically since, uh, uh, since that. Um, that estimate was made. Uh, the charismatic movement is already in the majority report amongst evangelical Christians. Can we seriously say that they are all misled or misguided? Isn't it more likely that cessationists are the heretics? Generally speaking, within Christian movements, it's usually uh, the majority that are right and the minority um, when it comes to theology who are incorrect. We are asserting that it's now the other way around. Has that ever happened in history? Yes. So the, the, uh, you had emperors who were in favor of Arianism. You had entire uh, nations. So for instance, um, uh, many of the barbarians were converted over to Arianism, Huns and Visigoths, for instance, who became uh, uh, Arian supporters. So yeah, there was a, uh, I'm not sure it was ever really, if you counted up all the Christians, that it was absolutely the majority, but certainly in certain areas of the world, it was definitely uh, in the majority opinion, yeah. How about something that occurred in the 16th century? Anybody, anybody? Reformation. The Reformation. Okay. The Reformation or the Reformed within Europe were never the, the majority report. In fact, the fact that they were a minority report often meant that they were uh, physically um, subdued in, in battle and forced to stop uh, professing the true faith, at least openly, uh, in places like uh, Germany. Uh, the Palatinate, for instance, was a Reformed kingdom. They were, um, uh, they were crushed uh, in, in warfare. Some of the... Uh, uh, the Swiss uh, in Zurich lost uh, to the Roman Catholics uh, in Germany. And there was often, 
You know, they lost the, the Polish reformers, lost to the Roman Catholics in Spain, they lost to the Roman Catholics. And yet we wouldn't say that Protestantism and the Reformed faith with its uh, emphasis on the solas was wrong. And also we need to remember in ancient Israel, um, one man with God was still a minor, uh, majority. So didn't matter what the king and the majority of the Jerusalemites thought, Jeremiah was right. Didn't matter what the majority of the people within Babylon thought, Daniel was right. So um, we need to remember that uh, the man who stands with the Lord and on his word uh, is in a majority regardless of how many people are opposed to him. So personal experience. Uh, the argument from silence, the Bible nowhere explicitly says that sign gifts will cease, therefore they won't. Now we would say that there are passages that infer, or uh, that, not infer, that imply, people infer, passages imply, uh, uh, that imply that they'll, they'll cease. We've taken a look at that in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, uh, and the idea of when that which is perfect has come, that which is less perfect ceases. Uh, which is more perfect, scripture or tongues, for instance? Scripture, undoubtedly, even uh, prophetic words. You can't fake scripture, uh, you can't fake the canon, but you can fake uh, messages from God, and it frequently happens. But nonetheless, they say there isn't an explicit argument that says that um, uh, it, it's rather like uh, when we argue for infant baptism. Uh, we go to things like the household baptism, so, well, you can't show me a picture of a baby actually being baptized in the New Testament. Um, and we would, we would say, no, but a household is more than just husband and wife. Uh, it would be husband, wife, children, and servants, as a matter of fact. So, um, but nonetheless, they, they still say, you know, it doesn't say specifically that it will cease. Uh, finally, the end times argument. The gifts have been restored. And we remember there are two positions within the, uh, the uh, continuation camp, all right, or the uh, spiritual gifts for today camp. Some say they never went away, but they were rather quenched. Do we think that's a very strong argument? No, that's saying that the Holy Spirit can be, you know, effectively, uh, it's a human sovereignty kind of argument. And the other one is restoration, uh, that they were taken away for a little while, but now because it's the end, end times, they've been restored to the church, uh, given back to us and so on. So um, that's one of the arguments that's put forward by restorationists within the spiritual gifts uh, camp. Then finally, it's happening over there. Um, this is an argument you will hear all the time and it's very, believe it or not, very compelling, uh, which is, well, you know, dude, I, I understand how here in America we don't see people being raised from the dead, but my friend was in Ethiopia and there was an evangelist out there and he raised somebody from the dead and, and then in Russia there was the, uh, the, the guy went there and he didn't speak Russian and suddenly he was given the, the gift of, of uh, being able to speak in Russian and so on. Uh, but it's always happening over there. Nobody in the charismatic movement is suddenly being given the gift of, of being able to speak Russian in the United States in a documented way. Um, none of the televangelists, you know, Benny Hinn is not visiting the funeral homes and raising people from the dead and so on. And we would say, well, there's a reason for that. Um, but the, uh, still, it's, it's always, it always seems to be happening over there is one of the arguments that's uh, put forward. And amongst reformed people, 
that has kind of a compelling nature to it. We, we, we will say things like, well, we don't want to put God in a box. We don't want to say that he's not able to, to function in these ways in um, developing nations, for instance. Or, and we don't want to tell people they're misguided, psychotic, or demon-possessed. You know, that's, uh, uh, we never want to be saying things like that, so uh, we leave it alone. All right, any questions about that? Or we'll go on to the next slide. All right, let's go to the next. All right, so these are arguments for cessation. Uh, the first is the purpose of the sign gifts was foundational. Once that foundation was laid, there was no longer any need for them. Their purpose was to, one, authenticate Christ and his apostles and their message. This was done. All right, so how did the apostles go about proving that they were messengers sent by God? By, by doing miracles, okay, doing things that other men could not do. In Acts chapter 2, Peter specifically references this, okay. A man who was, uh, he describes Christ as having been authenticated before you, okay. His miracles testified to his genuineness. Even Jesus himself in the Gospel of John said, if you don't believe me, believe the miracles that I'm doing, okay. Um, in fact, he says, for which of the miracles that I've done are you persecuting me? And they're like, it's not because of the miracles, it's because of what you say, blah, blah, blah. So they can't, even, uh, they, they can't even say that these things weren't being done. What's the argument, actually, that the Pharisees made regarding his miracles? Uh, that it was Beelzebub. That, yeah, that it was the power of the devil that was doing them. And then, of course, Jesus made the famous argument, what? House divided. Yeah, since when does the devil... Since when does the devil care about us, do nice things, heal people, etc.? That's not, it's not the devil's style. All right. They were, this was done. Uh, they laid down the deposit of revelation that would become the scripture. This too was done. Okay. We have scripture. It's, we believe the canon is closed. Everything that we need to know uh, to be Christians is contained within scripture. Where do we see uh, an apostle specifically saying that everything needed to be known as a Christian, to be uh, thoroughly equipped is contained within Scripture. It is. Second Timothy three sixteen is, uh, is the place we need to be looking at. Yeah, three fifteen and sixteen, or three fifteen through seventeen actually. The Paulian argument. Oh no! And so was Paprikash. No, the answer was Deuteronomy. So uh, the Pauline uh, argument, 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12. When that which is perfect has come, that which is less perfect ceases. We talked about that before. Uh, these things were less perfect than the scriptures that they were intended to complete. After all, prophecy, tongues, and so on can be false. Scripture cannot be. Scripture is perfect. It is complete. Nothing else is necessary. And hence, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Now, are you, generally speaking, going to be able to persuade somebody who was honestly believing that they're manifesting Pentecostal sign gifts? No. no. Why? Joy? Oh, I think I have a theory that it's much like the It's, it's rather like the argument, uh, it's an argument against it's personal experience. Very difficult to argue against somebody's personal experience. Uh, I can argue all day long that French food is not the best in the world, but somebody who has, you know, who was raised in that particular um, uh, school of cooking uh, 
uh, will, and who has experienced it and eaten it and really enjoys it, they'll argue, no, it is. So, what? I do love French food. I mean, it would be difficult to argue with me. You know, so let's turn that around. It would be difficult to explain to me that, no, anyway, moving on. Um, so, but uh, it, it's also, uh, for instance, when you're arguing against televangelists, if somebody has had a great experience with this televangelist, it is very difficult for you to try, you know, you can pile up evidences. This man is a charlatan. He's a shyster. He's, you know, what he's teaching is, is false. Oh, but he's so good. You know that. Uh, so um, if somebody comes to you and says, Joel Osteen is my pastor, you're going to have a hard time trying to explain to them that, uh, no, Joel Osteen is not your pastor. Joel Osteen is a, is a wolf uh, in sheep's clothing. All right. Um, any final thoughts before we move on? All right. Let's go to the next slide then. But note this, this is, this is the critical issue, all right, when it comes to the sign gifts. We may try to pretend that there's no threat to Sola Scriptura, and Reformed theologians have twisted, Reformed theologians who are charismatic at the same time, and uh, continuationists or restorationists, have twisted themselves into pretzels over this issue, all right, because it necessarily means if somebody is prophesying, okay, and they're genuinely doing so because they have sign gifts, Okay, what were, uh, what were the four words that, that uh, are supposed to precede your prophesying? Thus saith the Lord. Okay? In other words, this isn't me speaking. Who is speaking? This is God speaking through me to you. All right, if somebody is genuinely thus saith the Lording, and it really is coming from God, what do we call that? That's the word of God. Revelation. Just like what we have here. It should be inerrant, it should be infallible, and um, it should be, if it really is the word of God, should it be lost immediately after the person says it? Not at all, no, it should be recorded, okay? We should be adding new books to the Bible on a regular basis. So Reformed theologians who are charismatic in their, tend uh, in their, their train of thinking and their theology, uh, give me an example of a uh, Reformed theologian who is charismatic in his leanings. Who can do it? Hundred brownie points if you can name one. It's hard to do, I know. Wayne Grudem, who actually uh, his is the most widely used systematic theology um, in uh, Reformed-ish uh, systematic theology. He um, <clears throat> has uh, postulated a an idea of lesser revelation uh, and. The idea that whereas the requirement for being a true prophet of the Lord in the Bible was 100%, you don't have to hit the 100% mark in the modern age. You can be entirely wrong. You can say something and not come to pass and not be a false prophet. Now, they have to do this because it, the, the accuracy rate for the new revelations that the, the new prophets are, are bringing out shockingly low, okay? Like less than the coin toss, less than 50%. Um, in fact, one of the, the big, you guys should all be characterized as, as false prophets and, and tossed into the lake of puppies and pancakes, um, is uh, 
the, the, the number of new apostolic reformation, new prophets, charismatic uh, and you know, word of faith preachers who told us that in 2020 Trump was going to win the presidency. It was virtually 100% because it was what their, um, uh, their followers wanted to hear. Some of them doubled down on it even after he lost in November. They're like, no, no, he'll be restored in, in uh, uh, 2020 after uh, there'll be a great, you know, blah, 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 sifting, et cetera, and made the uh, follow-up prophecies. And of course, did that happen? No. No. So according to Deuteronomy 18, what do we call those people who said that? Yes? Stone. We're supposed to stone them, yes, but nobody does. <laughs> well, they probably were stoned uh, they were, God, it's a different kind of stoning, yes. No, not the. Uh, so, in any event, the the big problem has that's presented itself is we only have one standard of prophecy within the Bible, okay, which is the Word of God, and if it's not God's Word and you lie, you're a false prophet, and you are not to be feared, not to be listened to. They want to create a different category, um, but and. And they also want to allege that their new sayings are not the same level as scripture, okay? So that we don't have, you know, Joseph Smiths who come out writing their, their own prophecies down and creating new books that their, their followers are supposed to uh, regard as scripture, like, for instance, what? Joseph Smith wrote this book uh, and the Book of Mormon, Pearl of Great Price, Doctrine and Covenants. And it was uh, him and uh, Brigham Young produced uh, all of those things that the, the Mormons regard as scripture. Yes? Go over a little more what, I mean, I, I follow what you're saying about Mormonism, but mm -hmm. when Paul talks about something, particularly in the, in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians, he seems, I mean, I read it, he starts to be talking about prophecy as something which edifies and tells people. This is what's going to happen if you don't follow the word of the mm -hmm. Lord. I mean, that's not, that's not prophecy, in, prophecy in the sense of, of divine in the future. Mm -hmm. That's prophecy for education. That, that, in that sense of prophecy, that surely is not. Is not. Yeah. Joy has her hand up. I want to, I, you're responding to this? Isn't it um, that in, I don't know, it, it, it didn't used to be that you, they used to describe um, yes. Um, so, for instance, uh, one of the, the best Puritan books on the subject of preaching is called The Art of Prophesying. Um, and the distinction that they used to make is that there's two different kinds of prophecy. There's foretelling, which is stating things that will happen in the future. Okay, that's the kind of thing that we read in Ezekiel, uh, in Revelation, and so on. And then there is foretelling, which is speaking the word of God. If uh, somebody is proclaiming the word of God correctly, opening it up and expositing it, like hopefully would occur within our church when the word is being preached, um, then that is forthtelling, okay? And so that would be, that's the, the prophesying in the sense that uh, they meant it. However, um, what seems very clear is that in the apostolic age, there were prophets and prophetesses who were, um, you know, uh, the, the uh, daughters of uh, Agabus and so on who were, actually proclaiming things that would happen in the future. Um, so for instance, uh, prophets correctly um, said that uh, Paul would be bound in Jerusalem, that he would be arrested. Uh, and that's why the, uh, the Christian community went into a, a panic and didn't want him to go to Jerusalem. Um, so that, in, in 
the sense that Paul talks about We have no problem. Yeah, no, we don't. I mean, some, some people have, you know, are gifted to preach and teach. Um, but that's not the way that Wayne Grudem is, is talking about it. He's talking about it in the charismatic Pentecostal sense. Yeah. But, so, I mean, but, but with a, a broader understanding of prophecy, you can't really say that the gift of prophecy has ceased. The gift, uh, the new gifts of divine revelation, that would be what we would say has ceased. God no longer communicates his will in the ways that he did through the apostles, prophets uh, of the Old and New Testaments. But his will, is it still being communicated through the word of God? And, and absolutely. So, um, all right. Many asked what harm could come uh, of embracing the view that the sign gifts are continuing. The most serious threat is the threat to the sufficiency of scripture. The idea that revelation from God is continuing either by prophecy or tongues necessarily undermines the sufficiency of scripture. To say that a declaration is the word of God Thus saith the Lord that it is not authoritative revelation is self-contradicting. Because the sign gifts can be and often are faked or used by uh, false prophets just as Jesus warned, they are an obvious means by which confusion, disorder, and heresy can enter into the church. False prophecies undermine confidence in the truth of God and in his declarations to his people. So um, it, it's not really, nobody's really come up with a way uh, to be able to balance the idea of continuing revelation and sola scriptura. Okay, the, you either have one or the other. Uh, either scripture is sufficient or um, it isn't and needs to be supplemented with uh, continuing sign gifts. All right, are we, uh, if we're okay, I'm gonna move on. We're gonna hit the issue of canonicity now. Canonicity in the books of the Bible. Go ahead and open up your Trinity Psalter hymnal to the back, which so helpfully has all of them reformed confessions within it, which is a great blessing. Um, we're going to uh, together read chapter 1, section 2. All right, so um, let's go ahead and read section uh, 2. And who would like to be our, our designated reader? Somebody with a loud voice. Or somebody who can be loud. Anybody? Okay. Go ahead. Under the name of Holy Scripture, of the Word of God, written are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testament, which are these. Do you want me to read all the books of the Old Testament? Yes, I do, believe it or not. Beautiful. <laughs> Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Okay, any surprises in that list? No. no. All right. Uh, do go on, though. You're not done. <laughs> of the New Testament, the Gospels according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts of the Apostles, Paul's epistles to the Romans, the Corinthians, the Corinthians number two, the Galatians, the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, Thessalonians, the Thessalonians two, Timothy one, Timothy 
to Titus, Philemon, Philemon, the epistle to the Hebrews, the epistle of James, the first and second epistles of Peter, the first, second, and third epistles of John, the epistle of Jude, the revelation of John. Okay. Go keep going. All which are given by inspiration of God to be the world of heaven. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any surprises in that list uh, as well? Old and New Testament. No. Well, yeah, no, when you read that, uh, when you realize that uh, Paul wrote uh, the largest uh, uh, chunk of the, the New Testament, it is impressive. How are the books of, uh, of, or Paul's letters arranged, incidentally, in the New Testament? This is just trivia. Go ahead. Big to little, right. So largest to smallest. Incidentally, uh, Philemon is, is acceptable. You, can, you don't have to call him Philemon. So. There you go. So. All right. Whoa, what happened? It just timed out. Oh, dear. Okay. Um, all right, so let's go to the next. Okay. So now, Derek, you would read section three. All right. The book's commonly called Apocrypha. Apocrypha. Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are, not, are no part of the canon of the scripture, and therefore are of no authority in the church of God, nor to be any otherwise uh, approved uh, or made use of than other human writings. Okay, so this is, this is tremendously important because... Um, are there churches that use the Apocrypha and treat them as canonical? Yes, there are. What's the largest? The Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they call them deuterocanonical. What does that mean? Second canon. A second canon. Uh, and they're very important to Roman Catholics because uh, there are some doctrines that they can find sort of uh, really, um, I, I would say specious, but uh, they, they can find some references that will help to buttress doctrines that you don't find in the scriptures, in the, uh, in the canon. Uh, the most important of them being, anybody know? Penance. Uh, penance, yes. Purgatory is the, is the overriding one. So, um, okay. So what are the apocryphal books? We've read the first portion of that. They are 1st Esdras, 2nd Esdras, Tobit, Judith, the rest of Esther, that is the Vulgate Esther from chapter 10, 4 through 16, 24, portions which you will not find in your English uh, Bible uh, when it comes to Esther. Uh, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, also known as Sirach, Baruch, and the Epistle of Jeremy. Uh, Song of the Three Children, that's the Vulgate Daniel uh, 3, 24 through 90. Story of Susanna, the Idol, Bell, and the Dragon, Prayer of Manassas, 1st Maccabees, 2nd Maccabees, and it's not listed there, but 3rd Maccabees as well. So um, these are the apocryphal books. When were they written? All of them were written during the same period. Yes, Joy? No. Jamie? In the 400 years yeah, in the intertestamental period. Okay, you know when you end the last page of the last book of the Old Testament, which is, which one? Malachi. So you get to the end of Malachi, and then what comes next after Malachi? Matthew. Matthew. Okay, you have a blank page in between them, but that blank page is 400 years. 400 years is longer than America was, uh, has been around. All right, so uh, this is a huge chunk of time where people not writing during that period of time. 
No, of course they were. They were reading, uh, in particular, wisdom literature. Okay? We had lots of rabbis, uh, lots of Jewish scribes who were still writing books during that period. However, we do not believe these are inspired books. And there's a lot of problems if we insert them into the area we call the years of silence. All right? The years where there was no uh, authenticated scripture being delivered to the people of God. Um, namely, they, well, we'll talk about some of the problems with, uh, with the, uh, inserting the Apocrypha. But one of the things that we're going to do or try to do now is to together talk about why it's important that uh, we understand why the books of the canon are the books of the canon. Okay. Uh, we'll talk about what the canon is. Why is it important that we uh, have uh, an ability to defend the Bible being the word of God? Why is that important in the first place, though? I mean, we're all Christians here. Why don't we just say the Bible's the word of God and move on? Why is it important? Should we just, eh, whatever. I believe it. God, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. The end, right? I'm not sure I understand the question. Well, all right. Y you believe this is the word of God, right? Yes. All right. We're done. Let's move on. We can continue on. We, we believe that these are the words of God. Aha! There you go. <laughs> not, not everyone does. Um, there are these little people who will show up in our households um, every nine months if we follow the uh, prescription that uh, God gives. What do we call them? Children. That's right. Not Oompa Loompas. Children. And um, we are called upon to do what? We're called upon to teach them. Okay? So... We should be able to explain to them why we believe these words are the word of God, not just the uh, daddy and mommy believe it, so you need to believe it too. All right? When they get older, that will become a lot less convincing. All right? Because there were some things that mommy and daddy believed uh, that they later find out are not true, like spinach is good for you, <coughs> or stuff like that, or you know, various things that they, they learned were opinions. Or that cigarettes will kill you. They, they try smoking them and miraculously they don't die. Yes, hello. So, Rhoda. Raising up children in the way of the Lord and uh, developing the reason for faith applies not just to children, right? As far as like in terms of uh, witnessing to unbelievers yes. that we are making our own. Right. Right, the queen of theology was the queen of the sciences, as he puts it. Um, the, uh, and, no, you're absolutely right. One of the things that we want to tell unbelievers, although we should never expect to reason them into the faith, it doesn't happen, okay? It's the word of God that actually does the uh, convicting and converting. Um, but nonetheless, we should be able to proclaim to the world, we have a reasonable faith. Um, my faith is a lot more reasonable, for instance, than beliefs that men can have children, you know, that's, uh, or be pregnant. So um, it, it should be manifest that the word of God is, uh, is far more reasonable that we live in an unreasonable age. But you still should be able to, to defend what you believe and tie your hand. To, to give them a reason for the hope we have. Right? All right, so let's move on. We all understand it. 
All right, so first, when we talk about Canon, we're talking about Canon, not Canon. Okay, not Big Bang. There are a lot of people, actually, I, I was getting, I'm not kidding, in the place where I was teaching, I won't say where it was at one time, I tended to find that everybody spelled it C-A-N-N-O-N. -N -N, and I would be like, no, it's not Big Bang. You know, I know your, your spell checker is making this correction for you, but it's, uh, it's a Canon. Uh, canon uh, is actually the Greek canon, it's a K actually in the Greek, uh, but it's a straight rod of measurement against which another could be measured. It's the yardstick by which all other yardsticks are, are judged, okay? Is this a true yardstick? We compare it to an R.C. Sproul. Now you've got R.C. Sproul going through my head. Did actually make the, the point that, um, that in Washington, D.C., there is... Uh, there are, believe it or not, these settled measurements that show exactly how much a foot is, how exactly how much a yard is, and so on. And you could go there and compare your own ruler and so on to that and find out whether or not it was, uh, it was absolutely accurate and so on. But the canon is the, is the standard by which all other standards are measured. Um, and it also, it's used shorthand in Christian theology to indicate the list of inspired books comprising the Holy Scriptures. So the books of the canon are the books that should be in the Bible. All right, these are the biblical inspired books. Let's go on to the next. All right, so the content of the canon. In section two of chapter one, the confession declares that there are 66 books which are to be regarded as the very word of God in written form. The list given should perfectly parallel the chapter order of books in the Bible you yourself use. And indeed, these 66 books compose the corpus of inspired writings that the church has historically viewed as the canon created by and received from God for our instruction since at least the fourth century. Now, you are going to find hosts of unbelievers who have listened to Dan Brown and or watched Tom Hanks's worst movie ever, which was? Uh, Paul uh, no! <laughs> How dare you! Get out! <laughs> Heresy! It's Joe versus the volcano. Uh, oh, no, worse than Joe versus the volcano. I can't believe you guys. The Da Vinci Code. The Da Vinci Code. Terrible from every standpoint and aspects, but teaching false theology. One of the things that Dan Brown proposes, and many unbelievers today believe, uh, is that the Council of Nicaea created the Bible. It took all of these different writings and it kicked out a bunch of things that should have been in the Word of God, and instead it produced, uh, it took a, a bunch of writings, all of them, quote, late, uh, and by that they mean years and years after the Apostles, that enforced uh, what we would call today Roman Catholic dogma. And um, that th this was a terrible thing. Now, the Council of Nicaea did address to a certain extent scripture, but that, they did not come together to create the Bible. All right? And they did not create a list that was not already circulating and approved and so on. What was the primary purpose of the Council of Nicaea? To deal with Arianism. Yeah. Uh, to answer the question, is Jesus... Homoousius, or is he homoousius? So therefore he is of the same substance, homoousius, okay? In this case, yes, homo. We want, we want, not, uh, sorry. In a military community, I'm sorry. I know. 
<laughs> I'm so sorry. It's just a birthday. Yeah. I'll follow this with pride for most friends. No, there goes my ordination. Well, let's go on to the next before they come and seize me and drag me before the. Uh... All right. So let's talk first about obviously the the Bible contains uh, two major sections, the Old and the New Testament. Now, while we don't believe that there is a division in the doctrine that they teach, all right, we do understand the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant. Uh, and we do understand that there's a, obviously a huge time difference between the two, but they're still teaching the same means of salvation, the same redemptive history. However, uh, so we do need to deal with the genuineness of the Old Testament writings. Uh, the genuineness of the books constituting the Old Testament canon as now received by all Protestants is established as follows. First, Christ and his apostles endorse as genuine and authentic the canon of Jewish scriptures as it existed in their time. Now you see this when Christ constantly is quoting from the Old Testament and affirming uh, that, um, that uh, he, for instance, has not come to destroy the law and the prophets. And incidentally, the law and the prophets is shorthand for saying what? The Old Testament in its entirety. So um, Christ often quotes as the word of God the separate books and the se several divisions embraced in the Jewish scriptures, the law, the prophets, and the holy writings, or Psalms. Um, you will find that the Psalms were the most quoted portion of the Old Testament. Uh, although, where's, where's the book that Jesus really, and this, this sometimes surprises evangelicals when they realize, which book did Christ quote again and again from the Old Testament? Yes. Yes, go ahead. You're correct. Very good. There you go. In fact, in answering the devil, he quotes from Deuteronomy. So, All right. So, so he quotes the law. And the, the prophets. Now, this would have irritated the fact that he quotes the law and the prophets. The entire Old Testament would have been, uh, also irritated what group during the Old Testament period, or rather the, uh, the first century? Sadducees. The Sadducees. Why is that, Al? Because they just believed in the first Bible. Right, because they only accepted the Torah. They did not accept the prophets or the Psalms or any of the other stuff. So, the wisdom literature. All right, so the apostles also quote them as the word of God, 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, all scripture. And there Paul is referring clearly to the <coughs> Old Testament. He talks about the scriptures that Timothy had read as a child that were taught to him by his grandmother and his mother. All right, and was she reading to him 2 Peter? No, why not? Why wouldn't his grandmother read 2 Peter to him? <laughs> yes, because it hadn't been written yet, you know. Um, so uh, she was reading to him the, uh, uh, the Old Testament. Was there sufficient material within the Old Testament to be saved? Yes, there was. Okay, because the Old Testament points us to Christ as the coming Messiah, and the New Testament points us to Christ as the Messiah who has come and is coming again. All right, but both of them emphasize the fact that you need to have faith in the Redeemer of Israel. Without um, the promised one, okay, I know that my Redeemer lives, says Job, uh, probably during the era of the patriarchs. Um, Jeremiah refers to him as Jehovah's king. What does that mean? God our righteousness. Um, what does uh, Isaiah call the Messiah? Starts with an I. Well, the suffering servant section of uh, Emmanuel, which means 
God with us, okay? And he speaks of the virgin birth. He um, uh, talks about the, uh, the way that uh, he would make vicarious atonement for us, particularly in Isaiah 53. So same, same mode of salvation. Christ often rebuked the Jews for disobeying, but never for forging or corrupting their scriptures, okay? So he, um, he said that they pretend that they're obeying the scriptures, but what they constantly are doing is lowering the requirements of the law Far from being legalists, um, the Pharisees were in many ways antinomian. What is the difference between legalists and antinomians? Mm -hmm. two, two sides of the same coin. Okay, and it regards your attitude toward law. Yes, Jane? Well, I was going to say that a legalist uh, endeavors to be saved by keeping the law, and an antinomian uh, just dispenses with Right. Right. So he, um, uh, those would be the lawless ones whom Christ says, "I never knew you." To at the end of, uh, end of time. So uh, what they attempted to do was to lower the requirements of the law to create loopholes for themselves so they could get over it. Because, <clears throat> for instance, when the rich young ruler comes and uh, asks, "What must I do to be saved?" Jesus says to him, "Keep the commandments." He says. I kept the commandments. Which ones do you mean? And he starts them off, therefore, with the first. Okay, go home, sell everything you've got, give up your privilege, your honor, your position, and your wealth, the things that you worship in your heart without realizing it, and come follow me. Is he able to do that? No, no because those things occupy the place in his heart that only God should. Has he even kept the first commandment? No, he hasn't, okay? So the apostles are amazed at this because he goes away sorrowing how difficult it is for the rich to be saved. But the rich can't be saved. Who can be saved? With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Christ points to the fact that the only way you can be saved is through faith in him. Again and again, that's reaffirmed, and the apostles teach the same thing. So um, they disobeyed the scriptures, but they didn't forge them, and the Pharisees were absolutely right to embrace the entire corpus of scripture. All right, let's go to the next all right, this raises the question. Now, I, I need to make this point, okay? Three things are often mistaken, jumbled up, messed up in Christian minds. They are the Nag Hammadi uh, scrolls, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Apocrypha, okay? They, they, get these, they, they think these are all the same thing. And so, for instance, when you're talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls, somebody will say, oh, yes, the Gospel of Tongues. Is the Gospel of Thomas a Dead Sea Scroll? No, it is not. It's a Nag Hammadi document, much, much later than the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, a collect the Dead Sea Scrolls were a collection of 972 texts discovered between 1946 and 1956 at Kirbet Qumran in the West Bank. An amazing story. A uh, Palestinian shepherd child is wandering through a canyon. He throws a rock into an open cave. And what does he hear? He hears pottery smashing. So he climbs up to it, goes inside, and he finds that the, uh, the cave is full of these jars, one of which he smashed with a rock. What's inside? Scrolls. Uh, then begins this amazing scramble to find all of these scrolls and to try to stop them from being hawked on the antiquities market uh, far and wide. Um, many of them, incidentally, uh, many of the, well, some of the scrolls and some of the fragments disappeared and went into private collections and to this day still haven't been um, uh, removed. Some of the scrolls were so badly damaged, fragmented, that uh, they still have not been completely 
reassembled and so on, the process uh, uh, continues uh, with the, um, uh, with the, the Qumran scrolls. But uh, this was a treasure trove because it gave us uh, a collection of Old Testament books that uh, it went back to the time of Jesus and prior to the time of Jesus. So uh, bronze coins found on the site form a series beginning with John Hyrcanus, uh, which is 135 to 104 BC, and continuing until the first Jewish-Roman War, um, 66 to 73 AD. And 73 AD was when which fortress was finally subdued? Masada was finally taken down. The text of these scrolls does not differ substantially from the text of the current Old Testament books. Now, how did they get in the cave? Does anybody know the story of how they got in the cave, why they were there? Yes, Joy, I know you know. Can you tell us? What was the name of the sect? I don't remember. They think the Essenes, yeah. Okay. Why did the people say Ossuaries, yeah, the equivalent of an ossuary, and then they buried them in the caves. Right. Uh, because they contained the word of God, and therefore they felt that if they were to burn them or throw them on the rubbish pile, that it would be what? It would be blasphemy, yeah. It would be a violation of the third commandment, so they had to uh, get rid of them. But this left behind, um, even though these were worn out scrolls, okay, um, they were nonetheless because they indicate to us that our version of the Old Testament is the same version of the Old Testament. The Masoretic text that we've been depending upon, the Babylonian text, uh, is essentially the same as the, um, the Judean text that we find uh, in these caves. There are no substantial differences between them. Uh, and therefore, we, we have uh, an authentic, uh, authentic, authentic uh, indication uh, and an authoritative indication that the, the, the books that we have today are essentially the same as the books that were given then. All right, let's go, let's go to the next one. All right, so the Old Testament canon we have today is the same one used by Christ and the apostles. Uh, the New Testament writers quote as scripture almost every one of the books we recognize and no others. Now, there are mentions uh, of Enoch, for instance, uh, within Jude. Um, and there's a couple of offhand sayings uh, that would point us to wisdom literature in the intertestamental period, but none of them are spoken of in a way that's authentic. Now, you had a question, Will? Well, that's just a question, but I think the things that uh, I love about the, the find of the scrolls, if I'm not mistaken, is it's not just that we have the same books, mm -hmm. but that the, the copies upon the copies throughout the Middle Ages that we have now is a faithful, this word matches to this word. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Greek for Greek, um, Hebrew for Hebrew, as the case may be, so that when we're looking at what we have in the original languages um, and what we've done, it's, it's dead on with what we're seeing there. So we go, well, how do we know this? It's been 2,000 years since then. How do we know that what we have now is <coughs> what's one of the ways that we Right, so we have, the, we have uh, authentic copies from uh, that period that would indicate to us that we're looking at the same one. So, um, so they quote uh, 
from the Old Testament, all of the parts of the Old Testament, Torah, wisdom, and so on, uh, constantly in buttressing their arguments for the coming of Christ. Uh, the Septuagint, or Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures made in Egypt, 285 BC, which was itself frequently quoted by Christ and his apostles, embraced every book contained in our copies. When they were making their translation of the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, okay, the, the Jewish rabbis themselves picked the same books uh, and included them. Now, there are some differences in the way that um, the Septuagint is versified, okay, uh, split up and so on. Um, but they are so minor that uh, we can almost ignore them. Uh, Josephus, who was a uh, historian, Flavius Josephus, uh, lived through, um, wasn't supposed to live through the, uh, the Jewish uh, Civil War. The, uh, <laughs> he, he got, um, uh, I can't remember which city it was that was being sieged. Finally, it was just him and a group of other Jewish zealots in a uh, uh, Jewish guerrillas in a cave, and they all drew lots to kill each other because you know killing yourself was was seen as being a sin, or particularly sinful. So uh, they're like, "You kill me, I'll kill him, and so on. We'll go down there." And he was the last one, and he, <laughs> he didn't kill himself. <laughs> there you go. Uh, anyway, he was captured, uh, and he became a uh, a favorite of the Flavians. Um, and uh, a great historian because he wrote, the Romans were fascinated by these people who kept rebelling against them and because they were such an idiosyncratic people. What do they believe? What is their history and so on? So he wrote these, these books um, and he was given the Flavian house name, Flavius. He took it for himself and was particularly honored by Titus and Vespasian um, in any of them. Uh, so, but his, his work is some of the, the most um, authentic first-hand uh, information that we have about that, inf uh, about that period. Um, it's it, the equivalent, it's the Jewish equivalent of Herodotus, really, uh, in terms of uh, history. So the testimony of the early Christian writers uniformly agrees with that of the ancient Jews as to every book. In other words, the Christians were not fighting against uh, the Jews as to which books should be included. Um, and ever since the time of Christ, both Jews and Christians, while rival and hostile parties, have separately kept the same canon and agreed perfectly as to the genuineness and authenticity of every book. All right. So uh, the, the, you know, the, the fact that we, although we are absolutely uh, intransigently um, uh, opposed on the issue of uh, what shall we do to be saved, nonetheless, we agree on, on the, uh, the authenticity of those books. All right, I think I'm going to have to break at the Old Testament. Is there one more on the Old Testament? Go to the next, if you would. So. Okay, yeah, the next ones deal with the, uh, uh, the New Testament. Um, uh, we start discussing it. I'll discuss this one really quick because we've got it up. So this is the oldest existing fragment of the New Testament, Rylan's P52. Uh, the fragment, which has writing on both sides, verso, it's called, is dated to somewhere between 90 and 125 AD. Now, the reason why this is so phenomenal and earth-shattering is because you had an entire school, the German higher critical school, that was alleging that the New Testament books were second century or later, okay, um, all of them, so that they were there long after the apostles, long after everybody who knew the apostles was already dead. 
Rylands comes along and it is, uh, everybody agrees, 90 to 125 AD, somewhere in that uh, particular range, which means in the time when people who knew the apostles were alive or possibly when guys like John were still alive and walking on the face of the planet. It's much harder to um, fabricate a religion when the original proponents are, are still around. And also, the fact uh, is that um, the, the, the version that we have there, uh, which are portions of John 18, 31 through 38, is identical in its uh, text to the, uh, to the Greek that we have uh, coming down um, through uh, you know, the Alexandrian manuscripts and things like that from the, uh, the fifth, seventh, twelfth uh, centuries and so on. So same, same text. Every time they dig up one of these papyri scraps, and they're incredibly uncommon. Why are they so uncommon? Because it's papyrus. It, it dies, you know, it's a, or it becomes dirt. Uh, it's, it's just reeds smashed flat, after all. Um, so it's, uh, uh, it, it's very uncommon that you find first century papyri. But we find these things, and whenever we find these, these fragments, they line up with what we already have. They don't introduce any new doctrine and so on. We'll talk about stuff like the Nag Hammadi stuff, which was third century. Everybody knows it was third century. Fabrications that came in long after uh, the time of the apostles teaching an entirely different philosophy, Gnosticism. Yes, Nag Hammadi is the Gnostic Gospels. So, okay. Nag, na, you know, you can... All right. Anyway, so that's, that's one of my favorites. So. It's called the, the Rylands text. Now, you can prove this is something that you got to remember, and we'll talk about this next week as well. You can prove to somebody the, the uh, you may be able to, a lot of people are resistant to the very end. You may be able to prove to people, look, this stuff was circulating, because this is, nobody, nobody says this is from the first book of John. Therefore, it's a copy. Okay, all right, so this isn't the original book of John. It's a copy of the book of John, which indicates that the book of John had been circulating for a long time before this was written, and probably was written down, this version was written because the older version had worn out. All right, so, Can't yes? Think, at this point, they had already agreed that John was newer than the other Gospels as well, so can't you already, can you not make an argument for the other Gospels having... Put that pushing the other. Yes and no. Um, one of the things that we need to remember is that um, the age of the Gospels is speculation. Okay. All right, we're guessing uh, when they were. We know, for instance, that the Pauline Corpus predated the Gospels. Um, but uh, we know that, um, and that generally speaking, the consensus is gradually coming down that when it comes to the writing of the Gospels, it was probably a 40 year period. Okay, between 50 and 90, all right? So um, all of them were written about that, that time. Now, some of the ones we know had to be a little later because of the, uh, uh, the way Luke, for instance, uh, we know that Luke and Acts were you know, two volumes. And the, the events in Acts go through the 50s, almost to the 60s. So we know that Luke probably came out, um, uh, the first part of his writings probably came out just slightly before 60 AD. So, uh, you know, and then you try to put Mark and Matthew, but I, you know, after a while, it's, it's a lot of guesswork. We, we think John was the last of the ones because he, he's clearly filling in blanks, you know. Um, and, well, that's also, you don't have the, we don't, it's all speculation and church tradition. So John is the youngest of the apostles is, is a tradition. 
Yeah, it's not. And there's nothing in the. Is there's nothing in the Gospels. Oh well, that. Yeah, there you go. You proved it. Clearly done. Thank you, Joy. So anyway, 